Every theatre has its stories. There are the ones enjoyed by audiences every night, the ones applauded and reviewed, the ones recommended to friends. Then, there's always the ones talked about behind closed doors, the ones in which the theatre itself becomes a character, often tragic. My name is Hugh Hick. In this series, we're sitting out in search of those stories, in four of Dublin's oldest theatres. This is Behind the Curtain. Many of the greatest legends of the last hundred years have graced the stage of the Olympia, from Charlie Chaplin to Laurel and Hardy to Tom Waits. For the most part, the story of the Olympia Theatre is very much the story of 20th century popular culture, but there was a time when it unwittingly found its story intersecting with that of one of the most infamous characters of 1950s Dublin, the last woman ever sentenced to death in Ireland. Today, we go behind the curtain of the Olympia Theatre. As one of Dublin's few remaining theatres to have been founded pre-20th century, there's a lot that sets it apart from more modern venues. It's more ornate, more deliberately showy. What strikes Stephen Byrne most, however, is how small it seems, from the stage at least. But when you get up on that stage, you see how close you actually are to the audience. It's like the stalls and the, the circle kind of, it's like you get, it's like an optical illusion, like you kind of get sucked towards it. It feels like you could stick your hand out and shake someone's hand if they were in a box. Stephen is editor of Golden Plek, one of Ireland's biggest online music publications, so he's no stranger to the venue. He remembers his first time using a fake ID to get in for a midnight show back in the 90s and has fond memories of seeing the Manic Street Preachers playing their comeback show there in the early 2000s. A couple of years ago, Stephen wrote a history of the Olympia for the Irish Independent, which is why we find ourselves sitting on a hot July afternoon in Maureen's bar at the back of the auditorium. The walls are covered with photos of some of the notable acts who have performed in the theatre. To wash your eyes across it is like flicking through an encyclopedia of popular culture. Sure enough, it's not long before I see Stephen's eyes dart from one picture to the next. Anybody and everybody you can think of, from Chris Christopherson to, to David Bowie to Bono, is on that wall. And they've, they've all stood on that stage and done amazing things. And like Joseph Locke, who Maureen was um, on stage with for many years. Maureen is someone Stephen refers to a lot. In fairness, it's difficult not to. Maureen Grant may as well be part of the walls, like the theatre's own Forrest Gump. She started working there in 1949 and is still there to this day. She's worked on stage, she's worked behind the bar, she's done everything and anything. Um, her children have worked here. One of her sons managed the building for a long time. You know, she's been involved in some crazy stuff here. The building is haunted. For years and years and years, they used to hear a baby crying and... Um, they could never kind of find this baby. And uh, they got a, a psychic to come in and kind of go around the building. And he opened what's now the men's toilets and said that a child died here and his name was Parker, I think. And so they called the ghost Charlie Parker. Given how long it's been open, maybe it's no surprise the theater has a few ghosts. The building itself had been holding cabaret-style events since 1855, but it wasn't until 1879 when it was rebranded as the Star of Erin that it took a shape similar to what we know today. 
The most famous event of the early years, Stephen tells us, was in 1896 when the Lumiere brothers held Ireland's first film screening there. The theatre went through a number of name changes until finally settling on the Olympia in 1923. It continued to hold vaudeville-type events until well into the 20th century, including a two-week residency by Laurel and Hardy in 1952, before evolving into the modern hub of music and theatre it is today, drawing such stars as R.E.M. and Tom Waits. The most famous song that was recorded here is Tom Waits' live version of The Piano Is Drinking, Not Me, from 1981, which is one of his biggest songs, and it's generally considered uh, by the fans to be the definitive version of that song. Well, the piano has been drinking. My necktie is asleep from the combo went back to New York and left me all alone. Looking at the photographs in Maureen's bar, you see the story of 20th century glamour and showbiz in Dublin. But what about the other side? The history of Dublin in the 20th century is as often horrifying and grim as it is glamorous. I figured there must be these sort of stories in the Olympia's past as well. And there were. I had already stumbled on one, totally by accident. A few months earlier I'd been having dinner with friends, one of whom is a theatre director. Over noodles, I explained my search for stories in the Olympia. He looked at me. He told me he was involved in developing a show about the last woman ever sentenced to death in Ireland. Mamie Cadden, a backstreet abortionist who had become notorious in the middle of the 20th century. One of her most famous patients, he said, was a dancer with the Olympia Theatre. She died on the operating table. Her name was Bridget Breslin. Bridget Breslin was a 33-year-old dancer uh, when we discover her. This is Hannah Carnegie, actress and associate producer of Ida Menor, who are developing Our Lady of Last Resort, a play about the life of Mamie Cadden. A major part of Hannah's role has been researching the historical Mamie and all the characters that came into contact with her. Incidentally, she also plays Bridget Breslin in the play. She was a 33-year-old dancer. She was working for the O'Day O'Donovan troupe, which was Jimmy O'Day and Harry O'Donovan, who were sort of comedians and the, the kind of the variety show of their day. And they lit both the Olympia and the Gaiety stage every other week, basically. And she was part of the, the backing dancing troupe there. And she was due to go on tour with the company. And, and she had quite the kind of high life of a dancer in Dublin. And then she foolishly met a man. And uh, then she got herself into, as they said back then, a little bit of trouble. It turns out that when a woman got into a bit of trouble in the 1950s, there weren't too many solutions, and none of them were highly attractive. Mamie Cadden was one of those solutions. By this point, her name was synonymous with solving problems. You'll end up going to Nurse Cadden was a popular warning at the time, but it wasn't always that way for Mamie. Only 20 years earlier, she'd been at the height of respectability. She sort of started off in the 30s as a trained midwife. She trained at Hollow Street. She'd come up from Mayo and had it all. And whilst she was delivering very healthy babies, she started up a sort of side business of fostering out children. And very often what happened then was babies would be found on outside fire stations or outside churches very sort of wrapped up and 
you know, well looked after and they would inevitably be picked up by the government or the state and they would be put into a foster home and the government would pay that foster family a stipend. But if you're a midwife and you know that that's going to happen anyway, what you do is you say, well, in Mamie's case, you tell the women, all right, you pay us a fee, me and a social worker, and we'll take the baby and we'll give it to a foster family. But actually what they were doing was pocketing the money still leaving the baby on the church steps of the fire station front porch. The baby was still going to a foster family, but they were, you know, 30 to 50 pounds richer. She got into this habit and she, in a brazen way, left a child at the side of the road, the Navan Road in County Meath. And, you know, she's in a red flashy sports car and a fur coat in the middle of the countryside and thought she could get away with it and that everybody would think it was a man and that it was, you know, that babies were left all the time. And of course, they found her and they got her and, and they jailed her. And because of that, she was struck off the midwifery uh, sort of register. And then it only went worse from there because when she, she served a year of hard labour in Mountjoy, she came out had to get a job so she found herself a little flat in Pembroke Street and she went straight into what she did best which was performing abortions for women who needed them she she would advertise for things like enemas and skin disorders but really everybody knew if you were going to Nurse Cadden that that's what they were going for. Two stays in prison with hired labour later and Mamie Cadden entered the 1950s as a woman in her 60s with arthritic hands. If there was ever a time when it was safe to go to Mamie Cadden for an abortion, and there wasn't, it certainly wasn't in 1951, when a 33-year-old Bridget Breslin found herself in need of Mamie's services. So Bridget had been touring uh, with the O'Day O'Donovan troupe to Cork, where she met a man called Standish O'Grady. And she met Standish, and Standish was sort of the dying breed of the kind of wealthy Anglo-Irish landowners. And of course, he whisked her off the feet and it was love at first sight and he wined her and dined her. And then, of course, the inevitable happened. Bearing in mind, Standish had a wife and children back in Cork, but yet had this sort of secret life up in Dublin with Bridget. And they were about to go on tour to England and Bridget, well, I mean, we don't know for sure, but we like to think that that she was also saying, I don't want this to happen. And Standish said, well, I, I know of somebody who can who can take care of this. So they they went to Mamie. And how you performed abortions then, or how she was performing, was a bucket filled with water and a disinfectant. So back then she was using Jay's fluid. And what you did was you inserted a rubber hose, which has a pump in the middle of it. And she would pump the fluid into the womb, which would cause the lining to come away. And then the abortion would be procured and Mamie was pumping the fluid when her hand cramped an arthritic cramp and she let go of the pump and when she pumped it back in she pumped air into it which went straight up into the bloodstream straight into the heart and Bridget died instantly of uh, an air embolism which is as we say in the in the play a a little bit of air in a strange place uh, a pocket of air that goes straight to the heart and stops it. A few weeks before talking to Hannah, I'd seen a work-in-progress showing of Our Lady of Last Resort in the Civic Theatre. I already knew I wanted to explore Bridget's story, so I'd been looking out for how it would be dealt with in the play. And they don't pull any punches. In fact, her death scene is probably the most harrowing in the show. We had Mamie put her up on the table, 
and we just kept sort of a lot long costume so long dress over the knees so that you don't see anything and that the, the actress playing Mimi then sort of just slipped a hand in under the skirt sort of talks her through it and then all of a sudden Bridget goes limp over the table there's a moment of panic Standish comes in realizes what's going on and then we chose to for the discomfort of the audience show Standish dragging the body and we made it in such a way that that he really dragged me right halfway around the stage so that it wasn't just two steps and a dump we made the point of in the you know he would have had to have dragged her down stairs he would have had to have then got her down the steps at Hume Street and then drag her a couple of doors down and that the, the sort of the awkward thing for the actors was myself and Dahi who was playing Standish was that when he brought me down off the table no matter how it happened my skirt would always come up sort of up over my chest which meant inevitably I was sort of flashing my undergarments but we, we made it work because when it happened the first time, Dahi in character sort of grimaced in mortification and then pulled my skirt down over. And the, the, the actors we were working with, everybody sort of, you know, sort of grimaced and cringed because it was the idea that he was trying to cover her modesty when all of this had happened. Following Bridget's death, Mamie dumped the body on the streets a short distance from her house. Hannah reckons Standish helped as a 60-year-old woman managing to carry a 30-year-old woman's body by herself doesn't seem likely. Bridget's body was discovered the next morning, after an elderly lady initially thought her body was just a pile of clothes. The police, though noting the proximity of the body to Mamie's house, concluded that no person was amenable to her death. It took another, more high-profile death a few years later before Mamie was once again arrested. After a very public trial, she was sentenced to death, the last woman in Ireland to receive such a sentence. Then, something unexpected happened, though maybe in hindsight it shouldn't have been. People started speaking out for Mamie. Public support swung behind her, like one last debt of gratitude being repaid. Her sentence was commuted, and she was sent to Dundrum Asylum, where she died a year later of a heart attack. There's so many other stories we could tell you about the Olympia, like the time it almost closed down following a structural collapse, but was saved by a last-minute rally organised by, you guessed it, Maureen Grant. They actually used the uh, safe portion of the building to run shows to raise funds, and then that whole scenario kind of became so popular in the newspapers of the day that people actually lined up on the street to donate money to save the building. But we have other theatres to visit and other stories to tell. Did you hear the one about the time the Nationalists took on the National Theatre? Next time on Behind the Curtain. This episode was produced by Hugh Hick and Heather McLeod. Special thanks to Stephen Byrne, Hannah Carnegie and everyone at the Olympia Theatre. Their producers would also like to thank Davy Kelleher for his assistance with this episode. Behind the Curtain is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.